0: Oh, that's so good, that's so good. We begin a uh, new series of messages today, and I know that we have some of our children here with us, so let me give you a, some a recommendation. A lot of people have been listening to the message, I can't say a lot, two or three, have been listening to the message. And sometimes have been drawing a picture, taking the sermon notes, and actually drawing a picture to be the sermon notes. And and, and our high school students and other uh, adults who uh, don't have a long attention span have been doing this. And so, uh, children, be sure to take one of those sermon notes. And and as I'm speaking, uh, maybe you can draw a picture. And I'll be standing at the middle door at the end. Maybe you can bring it back. I like to collect these uh, to see what you have heard. You're going to hear about a family today. You're going to hear about a family. You might want to draw that family. We'll see because we are taking a, thinking about the life of Jacob. So today, we're going to open God's word to Genesis chapter 25. This is where it starts, verses 19 to 34. So let's stand because we are going to be listening to our Father's word, beginning with verse 19. Verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The baby's jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger." When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up. And Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick! Quick! Let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he is also called Edom, which means red. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What what good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him. Selling his birthright to Jacob, then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. He may be seated so Throughout so much of this summer 2018 here at Lake, that's what we're going to be doing. We are going to be looking at the gospel as it's lived out in the life of a man named Jacob. I'll, I'll tell you, as I've been reading this story, I'll tell you what I keep thinking. This is real life. I mean, in all of its messiness, I really think that all of us are going to be able to relate to it, even though it took place thousands of years ago, and some of it will seem strange and foreign. I think there are so many parts of this that we'll be able to relate to. I mean, to the fears of a married couple and some of the struggles they had in their marriage, uh, to the sibling rivalry between two brothers. I think as Donovan was reading, I wondered if you had any of this happening, Donovan, maybe, maybe not. Uh, to the temptation, uh, to resort sometimes even to deception, to get those things we really want, and to many, many, many other parts of this story. Now, you need to know up front, and perhaps you already know this, none of the characters in this story come out particularly well. This is not going to be one of those stories where I, as your preacher, I'm going to be saying, be like Jacob, be like, I'll probably more often be, say, don't be like that. But one of the things that you will often hear me say is, let us all learn how to walk with God in this imperfect world by watching how he lovingly and graciously deals with imperfect people, people like us. Now, as we begin this series, even though a lot of our people are gone this week, I have to begin by telling you something. Um, All my life, as I've learned to walk with God, I've I've had questions that have come up about how this all-powerful, perfect God actually interacts with us as people. I I don't know if you ever have any of these. I put just a few of them up here because they've just been emerging and re-emerging as I've been reading the story of Jacob. Questions like these, one. How does our God, who exists outside of time and space dimensions, I mean, even called time and space into being, how does he actually meaningfully interact with us as people in time and space in in such ways that you and I make real decisions that actually make a difference in this world? I mean, how does that happen? Or two, and we'll hear this a lot, how does God, our holy God, actually allow for our sinful choices to have genuine and often pain-filled consequences while at the same time use those consequences because of our sin. He uses them to further his purposes in this world. How does he do that? How does he turn an unjust crucifixion of Jesus into the very means of our salvation? Or three... How does prayer change anything? <laughs> if God already has said that he has a plan that he's working out, and he's going to bring that plan about. I mean, do you ever have any questions like this? Oh, four of us. Four, yeah, I'm, thank you. <laughs> so now you know your pastor does. And I've got to tell you this too. The Bible rarely, if ever, gives us those sort of, you know, term, paper-like explanations one, two, three, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Instead, what God has chosen to do in his word is to show us the real lives of real people in history and how all of this works out. And we're going to see it. He shows us people like, like Jacob, like his uh, older brother Esau, like his mom Rebecca, and is like his father Isaac. So Jacob's story begins in Genesis 25, verse 19. It runs all the way through chapter 36. And really what it lets us know, for those of you who haven't been here for weeks, we've been looking at what we've called God's biggest story, that the whole Bible is really a story of God's work in history, that life is not random. And we're going to see Jacob's life set within God's biggest story, because there is a reason why Jacob is born. There's a purpose for his life. And so that's where I want to start. Jacob is a part of God's biggest story, and so are you. Life is not random. So here we go, verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac. So, most you probably know this story. Years before Jacob was born, God had met his grandfather, Abraham, and he'd used this sort of like a poetic verse to give to him a prophecy. God often does this. A little bit later, I'm going to show you another one. It's so that we will not forget it. You know how it is. Sometimes with a song, you can remember the song when there's music to it, right? In the same way, God sometimes will put poetic verse into his prophecies so that people would remember it. And I preached about this a few weeks ago. It's in Genesis chapter 12. And this is a part of what God prophesied to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, anybody who has ever heard that prophecy, and now you have, (laughs) right? Anybody who's ever heard it will also know that if Abraham gave birth to Isaac, we'll know that this story is a part of that plan that God has to bring blessing to all people of this world. So we have Abraham giving birth to Isaac, and now we're going to have some other births taking place. We know that this is going to be God's family, God's eternal family that's happening, through whom salvation is going to be able to come even here to Pasadena. So if you haven't read the story before, you begin to think, oh, This is going to be God's chosen people, God's chosen family. Surely, this will be the perfect family. Uh, Everything here is going to go smoothly, right? Well, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Number two, prayer is an essential part of God's biggest story. So, look, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless, she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer. And his wife, Rebecca became pregnant. Now, I am quite sure that Isaac, Abraham's son, knew, just think about it, he must have known about God's promise to Abraham, right? And he must have known also, too, that he was the child, the son of Abraham, through whom that promise was supposed to come. So uh, he, he also has to know that there needs to be some more sons coming here. But the Bible tells us he didn't even get married to his beautiful wife, Rebekah, until he was 40 years old. So as I read the story, I always try to put myself into the shoes of the people there in the story. Don't you imagine that Isaac and Rebekah wanted to have children ASAP, right? But Rebecca seemed to be unable to have the child. I mean, it's just like Abraham and his wife Sarah. That had to wait until she was in her 90s (laughs) to be able to have a child. So after 20 years of them trying to have a child, they still had no son. So the Bible says, Isaac prayed. Uh, Actually, that's too weak for what it actually says. It says, Isaac pleaded. Isaac begged the Lord in prayer that a child would be born. I'll tell you, so as I read that, I started thinking about so many people that I've met my whole life, so many people in our own church who have had a deep, deep longing in their hearts for something good. Sometimes it's even to get married. Sometimes it's to have children. Sometimes it's something very different to be able to find a job or something like this, and so much time goes by. And so our prayers become awfully fervent. Either we give up or we do what Isaac did. He pleaded to the Lord that he would actually uh, Give a child to him and Rebecca. Now he has a child. So here's the big question, right? Uh, Would Isaac and Rebecca have had children if Isaac had not prayed? Because think about it. They've got to have the child for Jesus to come through that line. Would they have had. Sadly, the Bible neither asks that question nor answers that question. It simply says this, Isaac pleaded on behalf of his wife and the Lord granted his prayer. So let me tell you this, the entire Bible emphasizes that God is at work in our world with a plan to bless all peoples, but it tells us at the same time that God works out that plan in response to our prayer. It's mind-boggling to think about how he does this. God's people are there by all of us. We're called upon to be people of prayer, whatever happens in our lives. We're called upon to wait when God calls us to wait, but in the midst of that waiting to pray, and as we wait and pray, to trust God and to live for Him faithfully as we do. You just see it over and over again. Sarah and Abraham had to wait 25 years from the time of the prophecy until the child was born. Jacob, who would be the next ch- child of promise, would have to wait 14 years to finally obtain his wife. And that was quite. A, we'll see that story a little bit later. And then even the next generation beyond that, Joseph would have to wait 20 years before he was reconciled to his brothers. So as I try to think about Isaac and, and Rebecca during this time, don't you think they prayed over and over again fervently? And so what happened for them, I think, is that when she at last became pregnant, they gave praise to God. Don't you think? They knew that God was at work. So I've been thinking about preaching to you this morning. I, I thought, I'm sure that so many of us will come to church today in one of those very difficult times of waiting. I continue to have them in my walk with God. Maybe you're in one right now. Maybe there are things happening in your life that you just can't make sense out of, something on your heart that you want to have that it seems good to you. You don't know why God wouldn't give that to you. You know what God may be doing? To teach you to learn to pray, to call you to the place of prayer. I I think in this situation in Genesis 25, I think he wanted to be sure that they knew that this child who was born was not just going to be a happenstance, you know, just a human effort to bring about children because we always have children, everybody, but this one was actually going to be a gift from God. So many times I've heard preachers preach this message. God accomplishes his will, his way, and in his time. And I believe that. But let me add something to that today. Our prayer is a big part of God accomplishing His plan, His will in His time. He works in response to our praying. It it just seems to me that God has a plan that He's at work bringing about, but He does so in keeping with our fervent, regular prayer is a lesson all of us have to learn as we walk with God until He completes that plan. Uh, Many years after all this Isaac and Jacob and the whole story here King David would go through many of those times of waiting too. even when his own sons turned against him and he couldn't figure out what God was doing the Psalms are filled with this and in one of them Psalm 37 verse 7 he just says so clearly be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him so Isaac prayed fervently God granted his request. After you get this answer to prayer, surely now everything will go smoothly, right? We're finally going to have that perfect family, right? All right, let's see. Point three. God often uses trials to further his work in us and in our world. You can almost imagine, Pastor Greg, why do you always preach about trials? Just talk about the good things. But Okay, look at verse 21. Rebecca became pregnant, but the babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? Okay, I don't know who translated this NIV version that I have, but that is way too weak for what actually the Hebrew actually says. (laughs) Can I tell you what it really says? As she was pregnant, there were these babies inside of her, they were smashing one another. The word that is used is is for breaking a stone with a hammer. And and the language that translated, why is this happening to me, is she saying, why am I even still alive? Why should I go on living? And if you think she's overreacting, you, you need to know, in an ancient world, the mother back then believed that her main reason for living had to do with her children and her family. And you see, at last, after all these years when Rebecca found out she was going to have uh, have children, it was clear to her that her family was going to be a disaster. And she's so puzzled by this thing that she cries out to God for an answer. So we've got to see this. In her time of infertility, Isaac prayed. In the face of a difficult pregnancy, she prayed. and, and And in answer to prayer... God does for uh, Rebecca what he had done for Abraham. He gives her this beautiful poetic verse so that she would never forget it. If you wonder what like, if any of you are like me, uh, Tolkien fans and like the Lord of the Rings, you you see so many times you'll have those poetic kind of prophecies that come. I I think he was just reading it. He said, they do this in the Bible. I'll I'll put it (laughs) into the Lord of the Rings. So one of them, if you know the story at all, you'll know it well. Uh, one ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One ring to bring them all, and in the darkness, bind them in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. <laughs> I now mean, you hear that you hear that poetic verse, you remember it, and the whole story is shaped by that, right? In the same way, that's what you find in verse 23. Just look at it. The rest of this story through our series is going to be shaped by this. Two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, as you look at these two nations that were then who are going to be separated and do battle with, with one another, you know that's still playing out in our own world, right? If you read the stories of what's happening in the Middle East with Israel and the nations around, this is still playing out in the world. And it also is what plays out throughout the rest of this story. Um, I'll even show you a picture, just so you have a visual, repre- an artist, a sculptor, um, Has done this just keep that in your mind this is going to happen over and over and over again uh, in this story so all of this is to say this when trials come into your life never view them as being outside the knowledge of God God knows and outside of the care of God and outside the providence of God to use it God was going to use this family struggle actually to do his work in the world. At the same time, I want you to empathize with the family that's happening, especially with Rebecca. Can you imagine how disappointed she must have been when she learned that her own family was going to be characterized by infighting and division and struggle? Uh, I think she wept a lot. I I can hardly empathize. As a man, I can hardly empathize. I don't know if we have people who have had twins here, if you've ever experienced anything like it. But as a pastor, I'll tell you, as I've thought about her, I have wept as well. And it brings me to something that I want to say to you as your senior pastor. She couldn't see. She couldn't see where, she couldn't have imagined where all of this was going to lead, as we now can look back on and see. And so I want to say this to you. I've written it for you to, to consider No matter what you are currently going through in your life, God knows, and He is at work to bring about good. No matter what you see as you look into your future, if it just looks so bleak and difficult, God has much more for you than you are seeing right now. Your present circumstances do not capture all that God has for you. That was true of Rebecca, and that is true of you and me. Four. See, I didn't tell you I had four points instead of three. Four. You have to wait and see if there's a fifth, right? God's story has this unexpected use of our failing and the redemption of failures. So, I'm going to pull us ahead in the story just a little bit. Uh, Joseph is going to come in the line, but at the end, when some of the similar stories have played out, he will declare this after so many years of struggle to his brothers what you meant for evil, God meant for good. To bring it about that many people should be rescued. All right, with that in mind, let's go back to the, uh, the prophecy to Rebecca. The, of all the shockers in that prophecy to her, the biggest shocker is this part is that the younger is going to rule over the older, because that was not the way things worked in their society. Uh, so there's a birthright that would come to the oldest child, the oldest son. Uh, the birthright would give the oldest son a double portion of the family inheritance, uh, the birthright would make the oldest son who would receive it the head of the family. the oldest son would become the spiritual leader of the family upon the passing of the father. And of course, in this case of the of the child that would come through Abraham uh, through Isaac and Rebekah, this one would become the child of promise through whom the Savior would come, and blessing would come to all peoples in the world. That's just the way it was. In the ancient world. That was the lot of life that Jacob had. The the, the debt was stacked against him as being the second son. Wasn't very much after the first, but but he was the second son. Sociologists would say that this was a part of the systemic situation. The system was against the younger son. It can't really change. How is the younger going to rule the older? So, here it is. We've got to face it head on. In this story, the younger is going to get the birthright through acts of self-promotion, manipulation, and deception. Are you bothered by that? God's going to use this stuff to further his work. So, you've got to listen to me. This is just what... Ever since people turned away from God in, the, in Genesis chapter 3, this world has been filled with deception and manipulation and sin. And, and this story of Jacob is going to show us that God's plan in this world is not thwarted by human sin and by our weakness. God, God is wise and God is powerful, and He's found a way to work all things together. Uh, he uses... It's, it's, it's amazing to me. I thank Him for this a lot. He uses our human feelings and weaknesses, to bring about his good news into this world. Uh, the seminal verse for this is the one that we often quote, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. God is at work in all things to bring about his good that we won't see till Revelation 21 and 22. So back to the story, verses 25 and 26. The first boy comes out all red and covered with hair. And when I say that, I mean he was really, really covered with hair. So children, if you, or anybody, if you're drawing a picture, that, that should be pretty easy for you to do. Um, in fact, the Bible says, all his body was like a hairy cloak. So I don't know why his mom would give him a name to, to emphasize that. Esau, meaning the hairy one. It'd be like if you've got big ears or big nose or something. As, as, it means he's going to kind of probably be like what we often call a man's man, a real beast of a man. So so the second child comes out grabbing onto his older brother's heel. So his mom gives him the name Jacob. It means heel grabber. Why would she do that? And it was a word for the, in Hebrew that had to do with a person who tried to promote himself did anything, even grabbing onto his own brother's heel to try to get ahead and wouldn't let anybody else, the end would always justify the means for this kind of a person. And the thing we're going to be seeing all through this summer is these two boys live up to their names. So the story fast forwards in verse 27, if you have your Bible in front of you, to when these boys become young men. So the Bible will describe Esau as a skillful hunter, a man of the field. So Esau has become that man's man. I've I've been thinking about it. If he were living in our day, I could see Esau driving a four-by-four with those massive tires. Can't you see? Blaring from the music speakers would be country music. (laughs) And the back, there'd be a gun rack, and it would be a Doberman back there. That's Esau. He'd be in Dukes of Hazzard. Uh, The second, the... uh, uh, But the Bible describes his fraternal twin brother, Jacob, as a quiet man who stays in the tents. The word quiet means uh, ordered, uh, everything planned, everything under control. Many people sort of describe him as the wimpish scholar. He was not. He was a strong man, as we're going to be seeing in an episode. So I've been trying to think about him. I can see him going every day down to LA Fitness. And he is going to have a professional trainer working with him. I think Jacob is going to be listening to jazz. He'll be driving a Tesla. (laughs) (laughs) And everything is just going to be perfect in its rightful place. So you know the story. So Esau comes home from one of those hunting trips. And he is famished. He smells some of Jacob's stew, and he says, literally, "Give me some of that red stuff." That's what he says. Give me some of that red stuff. Give it to me now. Uh, Bible doesn't exactly say this, but I sense from the reading of it that Jacob has been plotting, planning for this uh, day for a long time. Because don't we know one another in our families? We know our weaknesses. He knew that his brother was an undisciplined man, but a bit of a drama king. Because when he comes home, he says, I'm dying. He wasn't dying. But, but Jacob knew that he would be like that. And he says, give me some of that stu- stew. And Jacob says, sure. Uh, some of this rich meaty stew, it smells good, doesn't it? But first you've got to give me that birthright. No, I, I, just give it to me, brother. I can only see him with the ladle saying, smell it. Isn't it great? I feel all this happening. See, I have a brother too. So anyway, I feel all of this happening and, uh, and Esau gives in. He takes the bait. This cunning hunter fell into a better hunter's trap. Became a prisoner of his own appetite. He valued that birthright and blessing so little that he sold it for a bowl of beans. See, now this is a sermon of in and of itself, I'll, I'll just make a comment about it. It it tells us how easy it is for all of us to give away the eternal, the things that really matter, for things that are so temporary. Uh, we all know how easy it is for us to give up something that that we our integrity, our integrity at times, just for some financial gain, to get a business deal done. Our purity for pornography. Our marriages and families for a fling. This will preach, won't it? So deal with that. God calls us to make sure that we make decisions based upon what is of eternal value rather than simply those, those temporary things that are just drawing us up. got to have it right now. We'll come back to that. But today I want you to see how God uses people in actions like, like the ones we see to accomplish his salvation plan. So I want us to think about these four characters in the story. Okay, Isaac, the father, loves one son more than the other, apparently because he just likes wild game meat. Rebecca, the mom, who loves one son more than another, and eventually she's going to deceive her own husband just to get him the gain that she wants him to have. Esau, who regards God's blessing and birthright as less valuable than a bowl of stew. Jacob, who's willing to swindle his own brother when his brother was weak just to get what he wanted. What a mess of a family. So I've just thought if you've come and you feel like your family is a mess, are you encouraged? (laughs) Are you encouraged by this? Because God uses his family God does not give up on that family. He doesn't give up on yours either. You've got to know right now that that each one of them will find that there are consequences for their sins and for their failures. Great consequences. But one of the things I want you to take home today is this. God's grace is truly greater than our sins. God's grace. He will both... Forgive our sins when you bring them to him, but he'll also use those failures of the past somehow to redeem things and to further his plan. I don't know how he does it, but he does. So what were the names of those four main characters? Isaac. You know what that means? It means laughter. Because when his mom was 90-plus years old, she was told, you're going to have a child, Woman, would you laugh? She did and called her son the child of laughter. Rebecca means captivating. She must have been beautiful because she was the kind of person who seemed to be able to charm people into getting the things she wanted to get done. Esau, we see, means a hairy one. Uh, Jacob means the heel grabber, the self-promoter. So they all had different names. And uh, in, the, in the Bible, those names will say something about the person. The thing I want you to see today is when we've seen them, do you recognize that they all had the same name. They shared a name. And it's it's the title of my sermon today. And that name is In Need of Grace. In Need of Grace. You know know what grace is? It means something we've never earned. We've earned the the opposite. They'd all fallen short of what God longed for from people made in his image. They, like you and I, have fallen short of the glory of God. Without question, each one of them was in need of grace, right? And the thing that I just declare to you is the God we worship today is the God of grace. It's only when they could own that name. That I, as much as anybody else, need the grace of God. There's no hope for me unless I experience the mercy. It's only when they could humble themselves in that way that God was able to work in them. And the same thing is true of us. It's only when we here at Lake deeply believe that we are in need of grace that we'll ever become the kind of church that God wants us to be. It's only when we really know that we're in need of grace, that we love God fully, that we come and say, oh, I've fallen short yet again. And God says, I know. And then when you turn to him, he'll say, I'll cast that sin as far as east is from the west. Doesn't that create a hallelujah for you? (laughs) In need of grace is what makes you love God more. And the other part of Jesus' greatest commandments, love people. It's only when you and I know that we're in need of grace that we'll love the people of the world the way that God loves the people of the world. That we won't just think they're rotten out there, they need to come here where all the perfect people are. All of us have the same name, in need of grace. Any amens to that? And we've found it. We found it in Jesus. We found it in Jesus. God's grace was greater than all of their collective sins. And I'll tell you, that's why we worship today. Because there's hope for us, for our families, even if they are as messed up as Isaac and Rebecca's was. That's why there's hope for our church to really be used by God. And why there's hope for our world. So, at the beginning of this series, I'm glad you're here. I want to offer you the hope that is yours and mine because the God who made you is the God of grace. I've written something down for you that I say to you quite often. I just, no matter what is there, when you know you're in need of grace, I just need to remind you of what God is like, that you really cannot do anything that will make God love you more than he loves you at this very moment. And you can't do anything to make him love you less than he loves you this very moment either. He loves you so much, though, that he won't leave you right where you are. (laughs) And I want you to turn back to him. If you see some of those things where, like Esau, you uh, have been throwing away the eternal for such temporary things, if you, like Jacob, have just been doing anything to try to get ahead, I want you to make a recommitment of your life to the God of grace right now. He will receive you, he'll cleanse you, and he'll work within you. See, you and I understand this better than Jacob could, right? Because we know the message of Jesus, he didn't. He knows how, we know how much God loves us because of Jesus, and we also have the power of God's spirit with, within us to help us to do things we otherwise could never do. But I'll end with this. No less than Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Esau. You and I have the name in need of grace. And our God is the God of amazing grace. It's to his glory. It is to his glory. Amen. Well, let me pray for us. Father, take this, your word, and continue to use it in our lives. How thankful we are, Father, for the fact that you did not write off Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, and Jacob. But now they still have become a part of your story. Father, we gather here too as, as your children. We want to take this time to turn our faith, our face, and our lives over to you fully. Where we see any of ourselves and any of these characters, Father, we, we repent of so many of those things. And thank you for your mercy and grace shown to us, especially at the cross of Jesus, offering us hope and salvation and a new life. When we turn back, we sing about, we rejoice in your amazing grace in the name of our Lord Savior, Jesus. Amen.